All right, good, every, good evening, everyone. Good evening to you. It's good to see you all here tonight. And uh, you should have two uh, papers on your, in your table there. And uh, one should state uh, how the resurrection changed everything. The other one should state, did Jesus really rise from the dead? So tonight we'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, so we're going to take a look actually at the scripture first. So let's go to Mark chapter 16, uh, one, one of the four resurrection stories or narratives. This is Mark's account of the resurrection, so let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we are there. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for the word of God that you give to us. May it have great grace in our hearts tonight as you reveal to us the resurrection of your Son. May we be able to grow in that understanding of Jesus alive and risen, having conquered sin and death and given new life. So, Father, we pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would show us the the glory and the magnificence of the resurrection of your son so that we'd be able to see our own resurrection in light of him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so we're going to begin with uh, Mark 16, and we're going to look at first just Mark's account before we go to the outlines. So uh, Mark uh, starts off with this. He says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. Okay, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the t- door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone was rolled back, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed But you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. Go. He is. um, He is risen. He is not here. See where the disciples laid him. But go tell his disciples. And let me me read that again. uh, Verse six. And he said to them, "Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter." that he is going before you to Galilee. There he will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay, so let's take a look at the, um, look at the verses here to see exactly what was taking place in Mark's account of the resurrection. So begin with, first of all, it's women coming to the tomb. These women are devoted to Jesus. Um, they have one last act of devotion to him, and that is to care for him in his physical state, that is his body. And they were faithful women, faithful to him. The question has to be raised, of course, is where were the men? Okay, they weren't around. Peter and John uh, and the other, the twelve, they weren't around. They were the faith ones without faith, 
whereas the women were the ones with faith. It's very significant in not only Mark's account, but also the other accounts of, of Matthew and Luke and John as well. Notice what it says, too, in verse 2, very early, the first day of the week. Um, it says they went to the tomb where the sun had risen. So Mark's account of the resurrection begins with the fact that it's night that is passing away and going into light. So that's really significant in understanding because night passes, meaning that the death, uh, the power of death is passing in light of the resurrection, meaning that the resurrection is beginning to dawn upon the face of the human race and bringing new life. If it goes back to Genesis chapter 1, where God said, first there was darkness over the, over the whole earth, and God said, let there be light. And sure enough, there was light, and it began to scatter the darkness. Well, here we see a, a recreation taking place here. Okay. And then verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? The women were approaching the tomb knowing that they had not the human capacity to roll away the stone. So here we see Mark basically saying human power is greatly diminished and limited in the face of death. In other words, it's no match for death. So the women are simply echoing what every human being on the face of the earth has ever known, that death is a formidable foe. Who can conquer death? And verse 4, looking up, and the language of looking up indicates that their spiritual insight or their spiritual vision was changed or brought to a new level. They saw the stone was rolled back for it was very large. Now, in the, in the scriptures, the stone rolled back means that um, it's a biblical image, typically in the scriptures, that God acted in some way. God intervened in some way. Um, Ezekiel chapter 37 talks about God will... Uh, cause uh, flesh to come on dry bones, basically. You know, he'll cause dry bones that have flesh that will enable it to rise up like a human being. In other words, that's an action of God creating life where there was no life. So what's happening here is that the stone is rolled back. Something, God entered the story and opened the grave. A very biblical theme throughout the prophets, how God will open up the graves of our heart and bring new life to us. So who will, who will roll back the stone is the question. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right. And I have to know a little bit about Mark's uh, passion narrative. There was a scene in when the disciples were fleeing. There was a young man who fled, unnamed. Some say it was Mark, but it was unnamed. Okay, And he fled, and he fled naked, which indicated shame, disgrace, fear, in the light of the passion of Jesus. Now, what do we see here? A young man again, clothed in a white robe, which means that God was removing the shame from the human heart. He was removing the disgrace from the human heart. He was removing the sense of failure from the human heart. Okay, and then uh, it says here they were amazed. In verse 6, as he saw, he said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See where they laid him. Now, Mark wants to make really clear to us that Jesus was crucified. He was dead. It, this is not an apparition. Like, he really did die. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute when we ask the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? But here we see Mark say very simply, look, he's crucified, which means he's, he was put to death, and now he's raised up, meaning it was an action of God that raised him up. 
he said, then he said, see, the see where they laid him. In other words, the tomb is empty. And we'll talk about the empty tomb in a minute. But go tell his disciples and Peter. So in other words, they were given a commission. Go tell. In other words, you're a witness to this. The tomb is empty. He's not here. Go tell the others. In this case, it was Peter and the twelve. Galilee is a very significant phrase here. It's because Jesus' ministry began in Galilee. So here we see the women being commissioned to go back into Galilee and to begin to tell the good news in Galilee, which is where it all began. First of all, it's where it began. Okay, and then uh, verse 8, it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. That was not because they were um, like they were like a f uh, in fears, but because they were it was like a holy awe, like they were just completely overwhelmed by what took place in a good way, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Isn't that kind of the ironical stuff? Here is they experienced the risen Christ. They were told to go tell, and they didn't tell. So what's that mean? What's Mark trying to say to us? Mark is trying to say that we, you and I, are face to face with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How will we respond? that. How will we respond? The silence is deliberately left there by Mark so that you and I could fill in the blank. Will we witness to the resurrection of Jesus in our own life? Will we witness that to others? Will we tell others? It's an evangelistic commission that Mark gives the church of his time and, and us too that will we be able to uh, sh speak of and tell others how the risen Christ has effectively changed and transformed our lives. Is that our witness? That's what Mark is asking the question. Okay. So what we see with the Mark's account of the resurrection is simply women that encountered Jesus. We'll talk about the significance of women in just a minute because they really are terribly significant in the Easter narratives. We, in fact, we won't even have an Easter narrative if it wasn't for the women. Okay. And their encounter with the risen Christ, they were given the commission to go tell. So in other words, an encounter with Jesus leads us to tell others. Okay, <clears throat> so let's go to the sheet that says, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Want to take a look at this? John Paul II, St. John Paul II, said this, the church rests on this assumption that Jesus Christ is alive, he's at work in history, and he's changing lives. Church rests on that assumption. It's a powerful assumption when you stop and think about it, that the church rests on the assumption that Jesus is alive. Now, assumption here doesn't mean a guess. Assumption here is referring to the, the underlying foundation of what the church is about. St. Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ did not rise, your faith is futile, and your sins have never been forgiven. Resurrection, or Easter, if you want to put it in those terms, is the heart of Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise, then our sins weren't forgiven. If Jesus did not return from the dead, then all his claims about being the Son of God the one and only sent by the Father, are null and void. I mean, he doesn't deserve worship or allegiance or losing our life for his sake. The resurrection is really significant for us. 
could look at the um, the first fill in there. Every a quote from Dr. Gary Haveris. Every single shred of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also evidence for my resurrection. It's really important to get it straight in our hearts and minds. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? We're also talking about our resurrection. That's really significant and really important. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So let's take a look first at the, um, I call the, uh, take a look here at what's called the swoon theory. Despite the swoon theory, it's S-W-O-O-N theory, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus died on the cross. What's the swoon theory? The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die on the cross, is what people said. Back at that time, some people held it throughout history as well. He merely fainted. <laughs> okay. Or he was drugged. And so Jesus kind of like went into a deep sleep. He didn't really die. Now, part of the problem with that is that, let's take a look first at the crucifixion and what led up to his death. Look at the, John chapter 19. Pilate laid open Jesus' back with a leaded whip. Jesus was scourged 39 times, and he was scourged um, with basically a leather whip that had sharp, jagged pieces of sheep bone and balls of lead. The whole purpose of the whipping basically was to lay open his back. So the the first... Um, whipping of his back would cut into the outward skin and dig under. Subsequent um, lashes would dig under the tissue and pull the tissue out. Oftentimes what would happen is the sheep bone would cut deeply into the back. The goal of this flogging was to lay his back open completely and uh, usually it would show the bowels as well. The muscles, the tendons, the bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure. So this would have rendered Jesus in a very critical condition physically. So one of the reasons why he couldn't carry the cross, he had to get, Joseph, uh, had to get Simon Cyrene, is because he was physically not able to, because of the flogging. Then when Jesus got to the place of Golgotha, they drove a nail through his uh, wrist. That nail um, was intended to crush the nerve there. Now, you ever hit your funny bone? You know how that feels? Well, imagine somebody taking a pair of uh, pliers and squeezing your funny bone. That's exactly what was happening to Jesus at that point. The word for in Latin for excruciating means out of the cross, out of the cross. So the crucifixion was excruciating, not uh, physically for Jesus, not to mention emotionally and spiritually. Of course, death occurred by suffocation. Normally, what would happen was that as a person hung from the cross, tremendous uh, pressure and stress would be put on a person's diaphragm and chest muscles. This locked them into a position where they could only inhale. They couldn't exhale. So they had to literally hoist themselves up with their legs um, and partic- to be able to breathe. Naturally, when a person got exhausted and tired, they couldn't do that anymore, and they would just die by suffocation. But if the Romans wanted to speed up the process, they would take a uh, steel mallet and they would break the shin bones. And therefore the person couldn't lift themselves up and they would inhale so much carbon dioxide that they would die. So in other words, um, their, their lungs filled up with carbon dioxide and they just would asphyxiate. 
In John chapter 19, verse 33, it says that when it came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance. Medical science has shown that the piercing of his side, puncturing his ribs and his heart, uh, the sack around his heart and his heart itself, um, was where the blood and water flowed from. The Romans were experts at this, and they officially declared him dead at that point. So it's hard to figure out why he would just be feigning at that point, okay? When you had officially, official experts in crucifixion pronouncing that he died, basically. Made sure he was dead. Okay. Now, let's just say for some odd strange reason, he was alive, <laughs> hypothetically, Okay. So, first of all, he would have to he'd be put in a tomb. How could he possibly get past, open the tomb? How could he possibly get past elite Roman guards? And let's face it, if he really was alive, uh, I mean, there was no body found. The Romans would be happy to have him put in the center square and show, look, here's his body. We found it. He's really dead, you know. Okay, so the swoon theory... You know, lacks a lot of... When you look at the evidence, what took place, it just lacks a lot of credibility. So let's take a look at the four E's that establish the resurrection. The first E stands for early accounts. Early accounts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Paul says, I pass on what I've received, which is of the greatest importance, that Christ died for our sins, as written in the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised to life on the third day as written in the scriptures. So Paul is saying he passes on what he received. What did he receive? He received this from other Christians because nothing was written down in the Bible yet. The Bible hadn't been written. The New Testament, that is, I should say. The Old Testament was, but the New Testament had been written. So where did he get that from? He got it from eyewitnesses. Now, the eyewitnesses weren't like 50, 60 years down the road. The eyewitnesses were people that had witnessed this thing and... Within just a few months, things were beginning to accumulate and say people had seen Jesus, encountered him, ate food with him, you know, sat with him on the beach, you know, sat with him in an upper room, all those things. In other words, the witnesses were early accounts, as it were, that Jesus had risen from the dead. So instead of thinking that the accounts were written many, many years later, they actually were written Months later, they began to accumulate the information. Why is that important? Because the, because the early accounts are testifying to what actually was taking place in an immediate context. Okay, so um, in other words, St. Paul could say, look, you know, it was handed on to me. Go check out the people who handed it on to me. They're still they're living. They're, they're the ones that could tell you about seeing Jesus, eating food with them, and so on. Okay, let's go to the second E on the next page. If you turn over, second E stands for the empty tomb of Jesus. Luke 24, verse 3 says, So they went in, uh, and but the Lord Jesus' body was gone. Now, Joseph Arimathea, it was his tomb, and he was one of the more prominent people of the Jewish council. So the tomb was sealed. And there were elite Roman guards placed around the tomb. Now, a seal means that, that no one touched this because it belongs to Rome. So if you touch it, Rome's going to come down on you pretty hard. 
So the seal was like Rome standing behind this. And the elite Roman guards were the best fighting men in the world. They were standing there to guard the tomb. So this was a really big deal to the Roman government, to Pontius Pilate. The Jewish leadership of the council thought it was a big deal too. So they had, they had what they thought was prime protection for this tomb. They didn't want anything like a, an escape or a evacuation or uh, to, to occur. So, um, so the tomb is empty. And who are the people that testify to the empty tomb? Or the women. The account says that the women discovered the tomb. All four Easter accounts, all four Gospels, record that the women found the empty tomb. This is really, really remarkable that if Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John were trying to have credibility with the people of their time, they would never say that women found the empty tomb. They wouldn't say that because women in that society had no testimony in a court of law. Their, their testimony was considered not credible at all. That was, that was first century Jewish culture. So if the writers then of these accounts of the resurrection of Jesus were just simply making this stuff up, they were just embellishing it, exaggerating it, they would never have women discovering the empty tomb. So the fact then, so, so more powerful fact about Jesus' tomb is women discovered the tomb. It was empty. So it's the most powerful fact. And, and the disciples then were committed to being accurate. So they would never write in the women for the sake of it. So they were just simply recording what they knew were the facts of the situation. That women discovered the tomb and it was empty. So how did it get empty? Well, Roman authorities weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish authorities weren't about to steal the body because they wanted him dead. Like I said before, if they wanted to destroy this whole thing about Jesus being alive and they had the body, they just showed the body in, the, in a public square. They'd say, look, here's the body. That would end the story right there. The fact is they couldn't produce the body. The disciples had nothing to gain in this either because for them to produce a body exposed them to the Roman government and the raft of the Jewish council. So they would be hunted down and killed, most likely. Remember, they already were hiding. Okay. Last thing they wanted to do was appear in the public square, right? Jesus had to go find him in the upper room, remember, <laughs> after the resurrection. Okay, the third E stands for eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Let's see what St. Paul says again. He appeared to Peter and men to the, and, and men to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more, uh, it should be men, 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So in other words... Christianity rests on eyewitness accounts, eyewitness people that encountered the risen Christ and can say with their life at stake here, we saw Jesus. We, he talked to us. So Jesus appeared to people indoors and outdoors. He appeared to people that were skeptics. He appeared like Thomas. He appeared to people that were believers. 
He appealed to hard-hearted people. He appeared to tender-hearted people. He ate with people. He talked with people. All the gospel accounts show all these things that Jesus did. For 40 days after the resurrection leading up to the ascension, what did he do? He taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. So there was, St. Paul says, over 500 he appeared to at one time. Now, some have said maybe they were just hallucinating, but it's kind of hard to get 500 people to hallucinate. But some have said maybe there's groupthink. Uh, if you're familiar with groupthink. Groupthink is when a group of people together get together. It's a kind of a wishful thinking that uh, where people are in the group. They encourage through the power of suggestion, peer pressure maybe, to believe a certain thing. Okay. Um, so was there groupthink here amongst these people? Well, groupthink think depends upon one thing is that they are anticipating the resurrection. The disciples were not anticipating the resurrection. They didn't believe what Jesus said when he said he would rise from the dead. They didn't believe that. Their Jewish beliefs wouldn't allow them and their upbringing wouldn't allow them to believe in the resurrection. Even though Jesus had prophesied to them, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to rise. They still didn't, they didn't believe it. And over and over again, the gospels tell us they didn't believe it when Jesus told it. So that's the first thing that kind of knocks out the thinking of groupthink because they weren't anticipating a resurrection. Um, secondly, Jesus ate with them, and he talked with them, and he had conversation with them. He appeared no, numerous times in different kinds of settings with different kinds of people. This is all contrary to groupthink. Okay, so the tomb remains empty then, and we have eyewitnesses. And the last thing is the fourth E, fourth e is the stands for the emergence of the church. On the day of Pentecost, it was Peter stood up, raised up his voice, and addressed the crowd. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So just think about that for a moment. Um, you know, Jesus, Peter is saying that this Jesus was raised to life. We are witnesses to that. We personally have encountered that. And the church grew. Um, the church church grew to a point where it was up to almost 150,000 people in Jerusalem within just, a, just within a decade, which is amazing growth at that time. Um, so when we look at... Uh, the emergence of the church, how it grew so quickly, how it grew through persecution, how it grew through uh, uh, all kinds of stress upon its leadership and so on, that we say, well, what would lead, what's the cause of all that? Were these people just throwing their hat into a religious cause? Something, they must have encountered something and someone who changed their life. It says here, nobody knowingly and willingly lays down their life for a lie. Okay, so summarized then, the early accounts, plus an empty tomb, plus eyewitnesses, plus the emergence of the church, gives overwhelming evidence that the resurrection is true. Okay, so what I can use to do is take about 10 minutes in your small group and just talk about 
um, how you would explain the resurrection to somebody who might be a skeptic, who might be agnostic, might be uh, even an atheist, or might be simply a fallen away Catholic who just simply has not had much interest in Christianity. How would you explain the resurrection to them? Okay, we'll take 10 minutes to do that.